chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying and they were calling to one another holy 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 is the lord almighty the whole earth is full of his glory at the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke woe to me i cried for i am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew, flew to me, and with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. When I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will I go? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing but never perceiving, Make the heart of this, of this people calloused, Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the city lies ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be right laid waste. But as the tabernacle and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Thanks, Barry. Be grateful that that part of your Bible is open. If you're in youth church, uh, your program is about to begin. And you can head off to that. But for the rest of us, yeah, definitely please keep Isaiah chapter 6 open. Now, look, I don't know about you, but sometimes I do have trouble visualizing just how big some big things are. It's almost the bigger the thing is, the harder it is to visualize. Uh, for example, we've been looking at, we've been likening the whole book of Isaiah to being the, the Mount Everest of the, of the Old Testament. And it got me thinking, um, everyone knows Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world, but how much dirt is in it? Like how, how, how much stuff could be filled up in it? How, what's its capacity? And uh, they tell me that if you treat Mount Everest like a cone and you do the volume calculation, then the, the volume of Mount Everest is 59.5 billion cubic metres. And I hear that number and I think to myself, wow, that, that sounds like a lot of dirt. But in all honesty... And I don't really know how big that is. I need something to compare it to, something that makes it more tangible to me so I can relate to it. And so then I'm told that the average house, the size of the average house, you know, the surface area times is about a thousand square metres. Uh, no, sorry, a thousand cu uh, metres cubed. 
you know, something like that. So you'd need 59.5 million houses stacked on top of each other. And I go, okay, I'm getting a bit more of a feel for it now. But it's still a kind of, I, I need something more tangible for me. And then I thought, look, I've done some landscaping at home. I've got a wheelbarrow and I've got a shovel. I wonder, you know, how, what's the average, what's the size of an average wheelbarrow? And how long would it take me to shovel dirt into a wheelbarrow to fill up the wheelbarrow? And how many wheelbarrows would it then take to fill Mount Everest? And imagine if I shoveled nonstop, nonstop, 24-7, every day of the week, no toilet stops, no meal breaks, no sleeping, just 24-7, nonstop shoveling. How long would it take me to fill Mount Everest with dirt? It would take me 377,000 years of non-stop shoveling to fill Mount Everest. And now I'm starting to think, hey, that's a lot of dirt. <laughs> See, I need those sorts of comparisons that I can relate to in order to get a feel for just how big some big things are. And, and, and I think effectively, why I start like this, effectively the passage we've got to, to, for us today does that kind of thing on the whole topic of the holiness of God. Because the holiness, our God is so holy. His holiness is so vast, so vast, that it's really quite difficult for us to get a grip on just how big it is. How all-encompassing His holiness is. And what that really means for that. And I, I know we've got some kind of a feel for it because, you know, we read in our Bibles that God is holy. We sing songs about the holiness of God. But how do we get a tangible feel for just how remarkably big it is? Well, that's where a passage like today comes into its own. It's a passage where Isaiah sees a vision. And as, as the passage unfolds, as we see what Isaiah saw, as we hear what Isaiah hears, as we notice what Isaiah said, all those three things are going to give us a tangible way to get some grip on the sheer dimensions of the holiness of God. And why does Isaiah want us to get a good feel for the holiness of God in the first place? It's because, well, if you don't get a grip on the sheer size of God's holiness, then you really won't understand the journey and the path up Mount Everest that we're about to be on. See, it's interesting that as we come to Isaiah chapter 6, the preliminaries are over. You know how we've been likening Isaiah to the Mount Everest in the Old Testament. We've been talking about base camp and that base camp, God, you know, the maps are out. The, the, the plan to scale Mount Everest is there in general. We've even had the telescope out to see where we're going. But now actually the, the, mountain, the journey up the mountain begins in earnest. The preliminaries are over. We start, look at chapter 6 verse 1, you can see that. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died. It's, it's interesting that that is a very specific date. It's much more specific and much more precise than we've seen in the books so far. It's, it's Isaiah's way of pointing out to us that chapters 1 to 5, they've been an introduction. They have been base camp. It's where you've seen in general, generalities the, the grand plan of God. Remember, he's planned to transform the earth by punishing rebels and cleansing or purifying the repentant 
But up until now, it's all been general plans and, and laid out in general terms. And we've seen some important things. Actually, we've seen you to know some very important things. But what happens from chapter 6 onwards is that that, chap- that that plan gets filled in now with more and more precise details. Like now it's not general, now it's in the year that King Uzziah died. And the detail that first gets filled in is this holiness of God, because unless you get that right, you won't understand much more of the detail that's coming. And Isaiah will experience firsthand the holiness of God in the year that King Uzziah died. And you know, even just the mention of the name of King Uzziah and his death, that ought to start kickstart you thinking about just how holy our God is. Because you might not realise, but King Uzziah, he was one of those kings who started well, but he finished badly. And what happened was, filled with pride and filled with self-arrogance, too lofty in his own eyes, at a later stage in his reign, King Uzziah entered the temple of, of of, of God to burn incense something that God himself had strictly commanded that only the priests were meant to do, not the kings, and he was a king, but he was so full of himself that he just went and did it anyway. And in doing so, he totally underestimated the holiness of God. And because of that, God struck Uzziah down with leprosy. And here as we start this chapter, we are in the year the year when the king who underestimated God's holiness, in the year that he died, Isaiah sees a vision. A vision about the holiness of God. You see it there in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, And the train or hem of his robe, depending on how you translate that, the train or hem of his robe filled the temple. Now clearly Isaiah, as he he relates this to us, is is describing for us what he sees. Describes what he saw. And so I think it's it's kind of handy um, to try and imagine ourselves in his shoes and in our own mind's eye, try and visualize what he might have seen. And to try to get you into the groove of doing something like that, if you're willing to humor me for a minute or two, I'd like you to close your eyes and try and picture in your own mind's eye what I describe is what he, about what he saw. So picture yourself, if you've got your eyes shut, picture yourself walking into a building. Not, not like walking into our building here this morning, but much bigger, a much bigger building. It's not any building, it's a temple. Imagine yourself walking up the stairs towards a temple. And you get to the top of the stairs and there's those massive columns that hold up the roof. And as you walk past those columns heading towards the door, you walk into the door. And immediately as you walk into the temple, what you, what you see, what you cannot avoid seeing, is a throne. And the throne is huge. Imagine yourself as you lift your head up, looking up and up and up, way beyond the roof, way up into the, into the, into the sky. There is this throne that is enormous. It goes up and up and up. And it is so vast, the throne is so vast that you can barely really make out the figure who's sitting on the throne. But you know it's God himself. And he is so big and so imposing 
and so dominant that for that moment, the figure on the throne blocks out everything. Now, as you imagine bringing your eyes down to where you can actually more familiar surroundings, now you're just within the temple itself. And what you notice as your eyes come down is that you can't really see much in the temple anymore because the, there's this cloth that is everywhere. And it puzzles you. It's completely filling the temple space, but then you work out what you're seeing. It's, it's part of the robe of, of, of God. And it's, it's just the hem, the little hem at the bottom of his robe. And it is so large, the hem, that it completely fills the whole temple. And as you take in the figure on the throne who is so dominant and you feel the overwhelming suffocation really of, the, of even just the hem of his garment filling the temple, as you, as you see and notice these things, what are you feeling? You're feeling small. You're feeling unworthy. You are feeling, oh no, I too have underestimated the holiness of our God and you say to yourself, woe to me, I'm a sinner. Open your eyes up now and I hope in some ways I've, I've tried to capture for you that moment of Isaiah walking into the temple and that is what he's seeing and feeling. And I'm hoping as you notice that and feel, see that in your mind's eye, that, that part of what's been trying to be communicated here by God is so clear. He's saying to Isaiah, make sure you know who the true king is. See the high and exalted one. You are meant to leave knowing that there is no one else in charge except him. And I think at this point, it's, it's, it's worth saying, this is not a bad corrective, this vision, isn't it? From the way most people in Australia visualize or think of God. In our, country, we, in our country and across the world, so many people are flippant and casual about God and they, they visualise him as just someone a little bit bigger than themselves. That is why when you see all our superhero movies, don't you, what, what are the superheroes? Well, they're just humans with a bit more power. And that God can be, he's just one of the mates, one of the fellows slapping the back, having a good day, are you? And he's high and exalted. He's radically different, different to us. So far above and beyond us, we stand in awe of him. He is not like us. His holiness is something that we don't even deserve to be close to. You notice that if in your mind's eyes you looked up that throne to try to try in some ways to make out the, the figure on the throne. What you notice up there is also there are these creatures flying around God. Look at verse 2. It says, above him were seraphim. The word literally means fiery ones. There are these creatures that look like they're on fire, flying around the Lord. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And you see, these creatures, they are there in the presence of God. They are, they are God's attendants. And you know that if you are going to see God face to face or be in the presence of God, you have to be sinless. And so here are these sinless, fiery creatures. And as impressive as they are, even they are trying to cover themselves. 
and cover their faces and cover their eyes. Such is the brilliant, the utter brilliance of the glory of our God. They tried to shield themselves. And as they try to do that, they sing and they sing praises. They sing about God's splendor. And they're basically saying, hey, Isaiah, God, God's glory doesn't just fill the temple. Man, the whole earth. Look at what he looked at the same verse. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 3. And they were calling to one another, holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So even as they sing about him, just their, just their voices, not God's voice, just their voices, kind of like causes an earthquake. And the whole place trembles. And they sing the words, holy, holy, holy. They say it three times so you don't miss it. It's a very Jewish way of emphasizing something that, to make sure that you, you know, if we were writing this out in a text message, if we wanted to emphasize something, you know, you'd write it in capitals, um, you'd highlight it, it'd be underscored, it'd be exclamation marks. And all that. This is the Jewish way of doing that. It's making sure you don't miss holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three times holy is his God of might. He, it's making sure you don't miss, if I can put it this way, the otherness of God. Because to be holy means to be different. That's what the word means. Holy is separated. To be holy is to be distinctive. And what you are meant to see here is that our God is so different to us, so beyond us, so dauntingly big, so blindingly perfect, so gloriously in majesty. He is in genuinely in a league of his own. So much so that even the seraphim can't bear it. And they are shielding themselves. As for poor old Isaiah, it's just too much for him. See what he says in verse 5? He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people, uh, people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. I reckon his response there, you ought to take careful notice of, because notice that, when he sees the holiness and gets a feel, a tangible experience of the holiness, the depth of the size of a God, of our God's holiness, notice it doesn't produce in him inquisitiveness. He doesn't say, "Oh wow, man, that looks cool. Can I get a can I get closer and get a closer look?" He's he's not like that, is he? He says in verse five, "Oh, I'm done in. I'm ruined." Woe to me is what he says. That's not at all insignificant words if you can remember if you were here last week. Because remember when Isaiah spoke about the people of his day and, and he used that language of the vineyard and the bad fruit that they had produced and he kept on listing off the bad fruit, remember. And he said, woe to you who buy field and field and add house to house and woe to you who are heroes of drinking wine and woe to you who call evil good and good evil woe 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 and now he says woe is me he had been right to point the finger at all the other people in the nation but he's remembered that every time you point at someone else there's always right three fingers pointing back at you he knows that especially when he stands in the presence of his holy God. Woe is me, he says. 
and he's not alone in that experience. Uh, you might remember that the moment when uh, our, our, our Lord Jesus Christ called uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, the first time he met Peter and, and, um, and called him to be a disciple. There was that moment where Pe uh, Jesus, I think, had used uh, Peter's boat uh, to speak to the crowds. And after speaking to the crowds, he, he told Peter to take the boat out into deeper water and let the nets down. And Peter was a professional fisherman. And uh, he basically said to Jesus, that's going to be a waste of time. But because Jesus said it, he did it anyway. And they caught so many fish that the, the ship was sinking and about to break. And what was Peter's response? Oh, this is fascinating, Jesus. So inquisitive about this. How about we go into business? All he said was, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Time and time and time again in the scripture, if anyone gets even just a glimpse of the dimensions of the holiness of our God, their response is, I'm ruined. I am done in. And it's like that because if you come near to a holy God, you become more aware of just how unholy you are. And Isaiah pinpoints that for us quite rightly. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Look, I want you to notice uh, that, that like every solid man of God, he never stands apart from the people, but with them. He shares in their sin there. And I find it interesting that of all the sins he picks up on, he wants to go, I'm a man of unclean lips. And we are a people of unclean lips. Well, why, why does he focus on that? I think it's because our lips carry words. And words are always, always a window into the heart. Remember, Jesus himself said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know and I know that our words are always, always a window into our very essence of being. And so gossip and slander and rage and cynicism and scarcism and swearing and blasphemy and lies and half-truths and over-exaggerations and you name it, you take your pick. They all reveal the heart. And so Isaiah is a, has this deep sense of the danger he's in. Add one holy God to one unholy people. Oh, woe is me, he says. I'm done in. And I think as you notice that, as Isaiah is standing there in this situation, I don't think he has any expectation at all that he's going to be forgiven. He doesn't stand, he doesn't even stand there and ask for mercy. I think that he thinks that door's shut. But sin never has the last word with a gracious God. And so verse 6, look at verse 6. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. I always find that a funny bit. Here are these fiery ones having to use tongs to pick up a fiery object. What's going on? Anyway, they have to get these tongs. They get, And with it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's an extraordinary moment. Having confessed that he's sinful, 
Isaiah is now cleansed. His sins, it says there, atoned for. And I think it's worth, worth noting at this point in time that, that how, how did that happen? It happened by a coal, a fiery coal being taken from the altar of God, the altar upon which sacrifices are made, and that touches his lips and he is atoned for. And friends, if you were with me climbing Mount Everest, the Mount Everest of the Old Testament, and that we, as we get to this verse, it's worth taking the camera out on a journey and taking a photo and keeping a record so you can come back to it. Because you, are, you might remember back in chapter 1 when we saw the big plans of God in, those gen, in, in general terms, that he's planned to purify the repentant. He's offered to wash their sins as white as snow. Back at base camp, we had no indications whatsoever of how exactly that would happen. And how can you do that? How can you make sins that are as, scar- as red as scarlet disappear? Well, here, as we start the journey, the picture gets a little bit more clear. It's not completely clear, right? There's still a lot more to say. We've still got 60 chapters to go in Isaiah. So it's not... But we do get more insight here, more detail. The first bit of detail is that Isaiah is cleansed from that coal that comes from the altar. So it does sound like a sacrifice is going to have to happen for the cleansing to occur. A sacrifice of what? A sacrifice made by whom? Watch this space. Keep reading Isaiah. Secondly, though, and significantly in this chapter, is that the atoning of sins and the removal of guilt for Isaiah is not achieved by anything that Isaiah did. It all comes from God's initiative. And the fact that it comes from God's initiative actually just serves to even highlight even more just how holy our God is. Because remember, the word holy means different, It means distinction. It's about separateness. And God is so separate from us. And the distance between us and him is so vast that the gap between his holiness and our sin is just so massive that it is only God who is capable of bridging it. Quite literally, we don't have a hope in hell of bridging that gap ourselves we have nothing that we can even that we can contribute that would make us anywhere near bridging that gap it's gonna have to be god who does it such as his holiness and friends at this point in time is this side of the cross this is a tantalizing glimpse ahead isn't it tantalizing glimpse ahead of what ultimately god is going to do through jesus and his sacrifice for us on his initiative to atone for our sins once and for all, to have our guilt removed, to bridge that gap. We are getting a teaser of that in this vision. Reminding us yet again that we are saved by grace and grace alone, that we have nothing to contribute. And it's like that because the gulf between us is so vast that only God himself can bridge it. I'm hoping that you're getting a sense, a good sense, a tangible sense of the dimensions of the holiness of our God. And if that's not enough, right? Now you move into what Isaiah hears. Look at what he says in verse 8. It says, Then I heard a voice from the Lord saying, "Who, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. 
Now look, as, as I read that verse, I, or, or, I'd, I find it really hard to imagine the tone of voice to use. Because here is the holy, holy, holy God that you've been underestimating, who's so much bigger than you've ever realized, and he asks for, who will go for us? And whom shall we send? It is interesting that the Trinitarian us is already there in the Old Testament, but who will go for us? Now, as Isaiah puffing his chest out, going, man, pick me. I kind of wonder if he's looking up at the seraphim going, pick them. They're going to do a better job than I am. I don't think there's an overly confident, forceful, pick me moment. I think in the presence of the holy God, whose throne just keeps rising up, he's been put in his place. And he squeaks out. Here I am. Can you see me? I'm way down here. Send me. Which is exactly what our God wanted to hear because our God had a mission that needed to take place. And so when he asked who will go, Isaiah says, send me. And in that you actually, I think, notice a very important foretaste of what the Bible will say again and again and again is that when God saves people, they are saved to serve. Saved to serve. You've not got your sins atoned for through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on your behalf. For you then to sit down and twiddle your thumbs and say, well, God, you got the one that counts. You got me. I'm just going to kill time until Jesus comes back. That is not on. And if you look at your own life and you think, well, where am I serving God? And you can't find anything. There is some, that is bad fruit. The pattern here is a pattern that is consistent through Scripture. You are saved to serve. And notice as Isaiah offers his service, he does it unconditionally. He's got such a thankful heart that God would atone for him. That he could go, whatever you want, wherever, whenever you want it, I'll be there. It's an unconditional for here I am, send me. And so God says to Isaiah, well then here's the mission. And before we look at what the mission precisely is, in your mind's eye, can you imagine Isaiah just pausing for that moment? Going, Gee, I wonder what the mission's going to be. I wonder if he's thinking, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my sins have been atoned for. He's going to surely send me to those up so they can have their sins atoned for. Is that the mission? Look at verse 9. Here's the mission. He said, go tell these people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their ears, hear with their, uh, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's, it's not the mission you're expecting, is it? The mission is to go and tell these people that judgment is coming. And in fact, even the telling of them that judgment is coming, all the effect it's going to have is harden their hearts and callous them further. He is sent on a mission to preach a message that's going to make them more rebellious than they were before. 
which is quite a confronting message to bring, isn't it? And I don't want you to misunderstand the tone of it. It's not like God is sending Isaiah out on this mission and the people that he's being sent to are people who really in their heart of hearts, they just want to follow God and this is God kind of deliberately shutting them out. That's not what's going on at all. What's being said here is that the judgment of God is coming on these people whose hearts are already hard. And so the judgment, the news is that the judgment coming on them is inevitable. The news Isaiah had to bring was, was well, what we saw in the last few weeks, that for years and years they have been arrogant and indifferent to God. For decade after decade they've been, in, they've been pushing God aside. They have been given chance after chance. They are the vineyard that has been spared no expense. God has sent prophet after prophet and yet this unproductive vineyard is just producing bad fruit. Their hearts are already hard. And Isaiah is sent to say to them, the horse is bolted. Judgment is now inevitable. And God is going to make sure that there's no more chances by sending Isaiah to preach a message that will only serve to send them further down the path of rebellion. Which is not happy news to deliver, is it? Which is why Isaiah asks in verse 11, or how long, Lord? How long I've got to preach this message for? You see the answer? Look at verse 11. Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields are ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. How long, Isaiah? Isaiah, you keep going. Until the whole nation is laid to waste. Till all the cities are ruined, all the houses are gone. Till it's like a forest where every single tree has been felled. That's how long Isaiah. And again, isn't it, this message highlights again, yet again, the dimensions of the holiness of our God. It's pointing it out to us that you cannot trifle with our God. You cannot expect to show God unresponsiveness and indifference and expect to get away with it. You cannot expect to show him empty lip service and insincerity and think you're going to get off scot-free. Our God's not like that. He's saying for Isaiah, who do you think you are? In the, in the light of God's holiness, do you think you can ignore him and get away with it? You, you are pipsqueaks. Our God is a God whose glory fills the whole earth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You obey him or he'll terrify you. You're starting to get the sense, the tangible feel of the holiness of our God. From what Isaiah sees, God seated high on the throne, surrounded by itself. To what Isaiah says, confessing his own sin. To what Isaiah hears, a mission to speak judgment. It's all ramping up the dimensions of the holiness of our God. Trying to get us to have the right perspective of the difference between us and God. And I think part of the reason to do that is to prepare you for the last verse of the chapter in which there's a glimmer of hope that you ought to then notice and appreciate the privilege of being considered acceptable to be one of his people. Look at how the, look at how the, the intriguing finish that you've got there. 
It says there, but as a terebinth and the oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. It's an intriguing way to finish a chapter because it's suggestive of regrowth. It's an image of a devastated forest where everything is just stumps, but, but out, of, out of a stump there will become a single shoot. And from that single shoot, a holy, a holy, it'll be a, a hope will come, a holy shoot that will give rise to a holy people, a holy seed, a different, separated, distinctive seed. And it's cryptic in some ways, but it'll get picked up more and more as we go up the path up Mount Everest and see this holy seed mentioned time and time again. And friends, an ending like that ought to draw you in. Ought to draw you in and go, gee, I want to be a part of that. <laughs> That's what I want to be a part of. The privilege of being part of this God's holy people. Wow. How's that going to happen? Well, apart from reading the rest of Isaiah, it's fascinating that this chapter in Isaiah gets picked up by the New Testament in a number of very significant spots. Because the trajectory of this of this preaching and this holiness of God gets picked up and then applied, not just in Isaiah's day, in his mission, but even in our day. It's fascinating that when Jesus goes to speak to those crowds, there are moments when he speaks in parables, in those stories. And he's at sometimes asked, why do you speak in parables? And you expect him to say, oh, because the parables are farming stories that the common man can easily understand. And so I speak to them in this way so that I'll understand. But that's not at all what Jesus says. When he is asked by his disciples, why do you preach in parables? He quotes Isaiah chapter 6 and says, I preach in parables so that the people will be, so those on the outside, he's very careful, so that those on the outside will be ever seeing but, but never perceiving. But they'll be ever hearing but never perceiving, never understanding. He actually preaches in parables so people won't, so that those on the outside won't understand. But those who want to listen carefully, those on the inside will come and ask him about it and he will reveal to them the secrets of the kingdom. But there is this trajectory of Isaiah preaching to people and it just hardening their hearts. And Jesus says, you know that trajectory? When I came to my own people, to my own vineyard, that trajectory was still there hardened hearts and so I preached in parables but it wasn't just Jesus that preached like this it's fascinating that the apostle Paul comes because it, after Jesus died and rose again and God did pour out his spirit and asked again who will go for us in the great commission and the apostle Paul is one who says oh, I'll go send me and you read about what the apostle what happened when the apostle Paul penned, you read about his mission you read, read about in the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. And I want to point out to you now just how the book of Acts actually ends. It's a very key moment. Paul's, in the, Paul's under house arrest in the city of Rome. And there in the Rome, there, there, in particular, there are a number of Jewish people. You've got to hear me write this. There are some Jewish people who did listen, who did hear and did respond. Paul's one of them, right? But he goes to his own Jewish people and they'd heard this message about how he turned his life around and he, he, they want to hear about him. And so he talks to them and he tells them that, that Jesus is the Messiah and that there's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. And it looked like they had ears to hear. But in the end, they didn't want to bargain. And what does the Apostle Paul say to them? 
This is this one's on the screen here, Andrew, if you can find it. This is the one verse we've got on the screen. Acts 28, verse 25. It says that they, the Jews, they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. What was his final statement? The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving for these people's hearts have become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand their hearts, turn and I would heal them. And then Paul says a most wonderful truth that changes everything. He then says in verse 28, he says to these people, he says to the Jewish people who are listening, he says, therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Seven centuries of hard-hearted response to God's word and the Apostle Paul says the good news of Jesus is now going to go to the four corners of the earth and he says they will listen. I appreciate the theological time zone you live in. It's a great time to be alive post-Jesus because it is a time of reaping they will listen you see i'm not i want to ask you do you believe that i'm not wanting to ask you do you understand it i'm sure you understand it i'm asking you do do you believe it because this is the apostle god through the apostle paul giving you the attitude you ought to have to mission in this world that as we do mission work together and individually as a church you don't do that thinking nothing will happen we don't run our church here at Wagga Evangelical expecting nothing to happen when we spread the word. No, no, we expect the Lord to add to our number. We, ex- we, we prepare for it. We plan for it. Why? Because they will listen. Now, we're not a church here that does this very much in our Sunday services where, you know, we have a spot where the leader uh, says some words. And then the congregation has a congregational response, a call and response moment in our service, right? Some of you growing up in, in maybe Anglican churches like I did would have done that quite a bit in the prayer book service. We haven't really done that very often. But can I, here's a moment we're going to do it today. Right? I'm going to say the first half of the sentence. You are going to then respond. It should be obvious what to do. Follow my lead. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. Okay. Like the kids talk. Like we believe it, right? Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. Friends, who will go for us? shall I send? You ought to be sending there like, send me. Send me to my sister who doesn't know Jesus. Send me to my cousin. Jesus, send me to my neighbor. Send me to the students. Send me to the factory floor, to the office, to my mother's group, to the sporting team. Here I am, Father. Send me. 
why? I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 